What's up, guys? It's David Hess from the Rising Above podcast. Have you ever thought or dreamed about starting a podcast? Well, look no further. Anchor has all the tools necessary to record a podcast from your computer or phone. You heard that right. They make it so simple. When you host your podcast on Anchor, they will distribute your podcast on platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. Honestly, it's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place, which is why I host on Anchor. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm today to get started. Hey everyone, welcome to the Rising Above podcast, a platform for you to share your story. Oftentimes, we all have something that happens to us in life and we have no way of sharing. Many people want an outlet, whether it's writing a book or going on a massive networking platform or starting an inspirational social media account. With the Rising Above platform, anyone with an inspiring, motivating, or interesting story can come on and share. It could be anything from the struggles of starting a business, the struggles of overcoming homelessness or mental illness. I've interviewed victims of rape, sexual assault, and abuse. There is no subject that is off limits. This platform offers a safe and fun way for you to share your story through a one-on-one experience. If you would like to share your story, the best way to reach out would be through social media. You can find me on Instagram and Facebook or through email. All the links will be provided in the show notes. Thank you for listening. All right, welcome to the Rising Above podcast. My name's David Huss, and today I have Adam Grant with me. Um, he got a hold of me a few weeks back and co- wanted to come on and share his story. Uh, he was also on the Fledges podcast uh, every damn day uh, today. And uh, so I guess with that being said, how are you doing today, Adam? Um, I'm doing well. I'm tired. It's been an interesting day. As I mentioned in Jerry's podcast, I was also driving a car that had minimal brakes trying to help somebody out. So I guess it's like an amusement ride for the day. So, <laughs> Which I still have to drive down to Jackson tomorrow to get it closer to her. So. Oh, geez. That'll make it interesting. Yes. Um, so... Uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. Are you from the Lansing area? You're, you just mentioned that you were going, you're going to get married here shortly. Yes. Um, yes, I grew up all around the Lansing area. I went to elementary school and stuff in Charlotte, Potterville, Vermontville. Um, in seventh grade, I came to Lansing, started going to Pattengill, went to Lansing Eastern. Like I told Jerry, it's kind of went as a loose term. Um <laughs> But I, but but I consider this to be home, um, and and this is where my mother lives, where my fiance lives, my mother-in-law, brother-in-law, my brother, so Lansing's my home. That's awesome. I I also kind of grew up in Charlotte, so. Um, my condolences. <laughs> so you've uh, been out of prison for a year and a half, right? Yes. Yes. Uh, you want to take me back and tell me yeah. what happened? Tell the audience, I guess, rather. What sent me to prison? The uh, or just talk about whatever. Let's uh, let's kind of take it back to to what you were involved in, and I was involved in a little bit of everything. I started. Okay. I started. My first robbery was at twelve of a Zephyr gas station. I got in trouble. My first formal trouble because my dad helped get me out of trouble the first time. Um, my first formal trouble was I broke into Charlotte High School in 1985, um, <laughs> tripping on acid, and not the best experience in the world. And one of my rappies was not the smartest uh, guy. He wrote him and his girlfriend's name on the uh, girls' bathroom <laughs> wall, um, so it was pretty easy to find us. Um, but that just didn't. It, it didn't stop because I was kind of invested in um, being a bad guy. It was a little bit easier to be a bad guy than it was to be a good guy. I, I was constantly told about this potential that I had, but it was always a backhanded comment because it always meant you weren't living up to it. Mm-hmm. So I didn't really want to have potential, and I didn't want people to keep talking about it, so I just kept doing stupid things. What, what was your home life like? My home life was t- typical of a lot of people's, other than the fact that I guess um, I was my mo- my mother was 15 when she had me, okay. so she was learning everything. I mean, there's a running joke in our family, but it's true 
that not only didn't she have her driver's license when I was born, she didn't know how to ride a bike. Oh my God. She learned how to ride a bike with me on the back of one. And if you know what a baby seat in 1970 looks like, <laughs> it's like a seat belt with a saltine box. <laughs> you know, it was not the safest thing in the world. Um, so, but I had two other sisters. One was born five years after I was, one was born six years after I was. So I was the big brother. Um, my mom was married and divorced twice by the time I was eight. So that also puts you kind of where you feel you're the, the, the man of the house. Mm -hmm. You don't even know what that means, but right. you kind of figure that's what it is. Um, but I mean, I had a good life in a lot of ways that I knew I was loved and I knew I was like my sisters looked up to me. Um, and, it, and it felt good, but it also felt like a responsibility. Um, we were poor. I mean, we grew up on welfare. We grew up on food stamps. I, re uh, I can't remember what all the colors stood for, but I knew which ones to grab at which time back in the day. <laughs> um, grew up on commodities. And I mean, you know, we struggled like a lot of other people did, but I also don't want to minimize the fact that I know my mom tried hard. I know she loved me and it couldn't be easy raising me. Um, so I give her a lot of credit. So you were kind of running with the wrong crowds in high school. Um, where did that lead? Everywhere. Everywhere but the right places. I was a bit of a chameleon in high school, too, that I could travel in almost any circles. And you couldn't tell what I was going to wear from one day to the next. And it kind of showed that I traveled in different circles. I, I was a jock, so I played sports. Um, when I wasn't wasn't in trouble and I could actually involve myself in them. I was also a burnout. I was also, when I applied myself, I did well in school and I didn't, and it wasn't that difficult for me. Um, there were many times I had to retake a test because they, my teachers swore there was no way that I could <laughs> have not cheated because I'd slept through all the classes. There's no way, <laughs> you know, there's no way you could have got that grade on there. Right. Um, so... I wasn't, it wasn't so much that I even ran in the wrong circles. I gravitated more to the wrong circles because um, being a successful failure is a lot easier than being a failing success. Do you think that you were just trying to find who you were as a person? So you were just kind of bouncing around to all these different groups? Or did you find that you've associated better with the people who were burnouts or... I think I did. Um, I don't know if I was really even trying to find myself. I think I already thought I knew who I was. Mm -hmm. If you know anything like about native tradition and stuff, and the most obvious example of this is the Hyoka of the Lakota. I almost thought that I was some kind of a Hyoka, which is a clown who does everything backwards. And like, if this person in your village is doing this, mm -hmm. nobody else should. <laughs> and somehow I believe that that's who I was as some kind of a Hyoka that I was never going to, you know, get things right. So I didn't put a lot of energy into it. And every time I would, you could, you could see this in my high school record that at the beginning of the year, I would always do well. And I'm doing two a days for football and I'm getting good grades and one thing would happen. Mm -hmm. And then I'd be off the tracks. And the reason I'd be off the tracks is because I always thought when I was doing well, that was me faking it. And when I was doing bad, that was the real me, um, which is an interesting thing um, to realize much later in life. But that was that was the logic that I had going, and that was the governing logic that so you would sabotage yourself. Oh, without a doubt, I stole my mother's car on Christmas Eve, man. Oh I mean, full blown Grinch. <laughs> you know, it's it's, it's ridiculous. But I, and I did, and things were going well. Um, and, and those were the, those were my triggers when things would go well, I would, I would skeptical. sabotage them. Exactly. There's, things are too good. I can't, can't keep, can't stay this way. No, I'm going to screw it up at some point. Let me <laughs> screw it up on my terms right now, you know, and I did that on a regular basis and it, and it cost me a lot of relationships later on because of the fact that people knew that, um, it, it cost me a good relationship with myself because, it took me a long time to realize I wasn't fooling myself anymore. And so doing 27 years in prison, that was part of the 
that was part of the journey. People are like, well, nope, people don't usually get that amount of time. I needed it. Yeah. Um, I'd, I wouldn't have learned at 10. I might not have learned at 15. I don't think I needed all 27 of them, <laughs> 20, <laughs> 25, you know, but they, they serve their purpose. Now, what led you to going into prison? Uh, well, I mean, drugs and bad behavior, and I've spent 31 and a half years in some form of a car- incarceration. Wow. So I went to jail at 17 um, for B&E and carrying a concealed weapon. Um, I don't want to start any beefs in uh, 2021, <laughs> but if anybody remembers the Nutty Boys back in the day, um, there was a little bit of... You know that? Yeah, there was a little bit of they were just they were making a name and they were running around and they were jumping on certain people and they jumped on a few of my friends and they were like Dino's next. Um, And I was Dino. And so I drank three quarts of Muscal and did an eight ball of Coke and went out looking for them. Um, But thankfully, I didn't find them. So that's where I caught the the, the B&E and and the carrying a concealed weapon. Did a year in a county jail on that one, um, got out, never really did probation or parole very well. So I caught another case after that, um, went to prison at 19, did two years in prison, uh, came home, didn't want to go back, but didn't have the resilience or stamina to be able to live life on life's terms. And so, you know, a few things kind of pushed me in the wrong direction. And I ran again and um, stole uh, a checkbook from my step grandparents mm-hmm. um and that fueled uh, um, a run of you know drugs and alcohol and it ended up with me robbing a bank in vermontville wow so that's what i went for 27 years for was bank robbery bank and or safe robbery as the do you get away with it i mean what's get away i got <laughs> three days I, I got to party a little bit on it i only away. had 200 and some dollars left in my pocket <laughs> when they caught me so i guess i got away that's insane how much money did you get away with? There were three of us, and there was only about $5,000. So it was about wow. 1700 bucks a piece or something like that. Wow. Totally not worth it, right? No, especially <laughs> when you figure out 27 years divided by that. And if I would have made minimum wage for that entire period, it was a nice chunk of money. So, Oh, my gosh. So what was it like going to prison? What was your experience like in prison? The first time was a little bit different because I didn't know. And I was 19, and I joked that you can't tell it now, but I was fine back then. And being fine in prison is not a good thing. (laughs) Um, It was pretty rough. Uh, uh, I managed. I spent a lot of time in the hole in my first incarceration. So like when I said, when I came home, I did not want to go back to prison. Mm -hmm. But I also learned that I could survive it, and that's what I've done a lot of times. And so um, when the stuff hit the fan that I wasn't really worried about whether or not I went back to prison. I figured again, Hioka, mm-hmm. I thought I was always going to do the wrong thing anyway. Right. So I was going to end up back in prison. Eventually I might as well have a good run before it happened. The second time was a little bit different because in Michigan, you have indeterminate sentencing. Indeterminate sentencing means that people hear all the time. You got sentenced to this amount of time. Mm-hmm. You get sentenced to amount of this amount of time at a minimum and this amount of time at a max. Right. So yeah. remember, I'm 22 years old when I commit this bank robbery. It's 1993. They tell me that my first outdate minus disciplinary credits is 2022. My entire lifetime into the next century, and I still have seven years before I even get there. Mm-hmm. And my max date's 2045. Wow. So reality kind of set in and... And I remember having a moment of clarity in quarantine. Um, I got my pink sheet. My pink sheet is when you get all those numbers in front of you. You got five different outdates. And I remember having a moment of clarity, like, now you've got some choices to make. And I laughed out loud because I was like, it would have been nice to know I had choices five months ago (laughs) before all this happened. Um, But I decided... I started making decisions. Am I going to impress the people in here or am I going to start worrying mm-hmm. about impressing the people out there that mattered? And that transformed years down the road to not impressing anybody but becoming impressive. Um, and so I started to work on that. But What would you do to work on it? Everything. As they say today, all the things. I did. Um, 
I found a way to get into college while I was in there, and so I started taking correspondence courses. I, I took the most difficult. I took a four-credit logic class, which was wow. both informal and formal logic. So I'm doing like Polish notation and truth tables and stuff with nobody to teach me. What? I'm doing this correspondence-wise, and, 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 but, I, but I found my way through it, and I was like, if I can do this, I can do anything. They didn't let you take a lot of classes in there when you have the amount of time that I do because they let you get, the closer you get to your outdate, you get to take classes. Oh, okay. So I'm so far away from my outdate that I'd started learning things so that I could put proposals in to teach the classes and self-help groups. Wow. So there was at one point in time when I went back on my appeal, um, I realized that the amount of classes that I had taught or facilitated if I would have started all over again, it would have taken me nine and a half years of doing a class every single day um, to reach that number again. Wow. Um, and I started out faking it. So I faked it until I made it. And the more <laughs> I worked on this stuff, the more it started working on me. And I was like, maybe I have something to offer. Maybe I'm not a clown after all. I had, um, I can't remember his name now. Uh, the guy from Good Time Makes Good Sense. Uh, he's a... He's the um, he's an advocate. He works for them. Okay. But he was on the podcast, and he was in prison for I think twenty four years. And he was saying that um, in order to be able to take college classes in prison, you your family have to pay for it, and it's not cheap. It's equivalent to like going to like MSU or U of M just for like a local community college. Absolutely, and then you also have all the the um, obstacles of getting your books and things like that. Cause out here you can get used books so you can get them at a discount. Everything in there has to be brand new and it has to come from certain publishers. So wow. you not only pay a premium, you usually end up paying the premium. So I was paying, I, I think, I think the average that I was paying, and this was friends, family, and my own, I worked pretty good jobs in there. So I'd make okay. 70, $80 a month, um, wow. which is pretty good money. But my books would cost, about $240 a piece on average. Um, and I was usually paying, like you said, you're paying out of district prices. Mm -hmm. So even though you might be doing community college or something like that, or right. Ohio University, which is nearly $400 um, a credit, um, you're, paying, you're paying a premium. I found a place called uh, California Coast University towards the end of it. Um, and they did a really good program and it was 150 bucks a credit. Wow. So I finished up my associate's degree before I came home. And just before I came home, they restarted the second chance Pell Grants, which mm -hmm. help a lot of people uh, now. Have you heard of the Good Time Makes Good Sense? Absolutely. And it makes excellent sense. <laughs> um, are you involved with them at all? Um, loosely. I have a stack of these, too. And so when I okay. go to certain events, um, I'm doing something for Nation Outside um, on the 28th down in Jackson, they're doing their summer fest down there, and I'll be bringing a stack of those cards, too, to explain that. Um, there's a lot of different ways to approach the good time. We are the worst, um, and one of the things that I think we even do wrong in the messaging of this is is that people were like, you know, you'll hear, uh, well, you do 100% of your minimum in the state of Michigan. Well, most people think, well, that's what you're supposed to do. The actual number mm -hmm. is we do 126%. Can you explain that? Because a lot of people that I've talked to since I did the podcast, I can't remember his name, with, with the guy from Good Time Makes Good Sense, they're, mm -hmm. they're like, oh, I thought Michigan had something like that. But that's not the case. No, we used to. We used to have a, We used to have good time. We used to have disciplinary credits. I was down for so long that I literally had disciplinary credits. But then the courts um, evolved too and get people in it that had never. They weren't around when disciplinary credits and good time were. So my judge was telling me, I don't think you should be getting out early. I'm not getting out early. Mm -hmm. I, I earned these things. You earn these things. Um, different ones are set up different ways. Um, but basically, as long as you're staying out of trouble, as long as you're doing the programming that you're supposed to do, it incentivizes that good behavior, right. and you get an opportunity to get released prior to a calendar minimum. What a lot of people don't know, too, is, is the, Ameri uh, the, the Michigan public got tricked into uh, flat time in this state because they said, well, in order to get federal funds, that you have to do this. Well, what they didn't tell them is is that, it, that we were already in compliance with the federal standard. We were already doing 85% of our minimum. We had a disciplinary credit uh, situation that would give you five days a month, too special if you were doing, you know, above and beyond. Okay. Um, 
So, yeah, we're under truth and sentencing, and we're one of the most restrictive forms of truth and sentencing in, this, in the country. I know I, I talked to a family member uh, about about this, and he's like, I don't I don't agree with that. He's like, because if somebody injured my family and they ended up going to prison mm -hmm. because of it, he's like, I don't think I would want them to get out earlier. Right. And my response to that was like, well, eventually they're going to get out. They're going to be walking among the rest of us. So why not incentivize good behavior? Not only that, but I mean, it's it's... That's not the way it works. All of these things are baked into the sentence. Mm -hmm. So when there is good time, they change the way the sentencing the, the, the way the sentencing is right. because they know it's going to be factored in. But it does exactly incentivize good behavior. Right now, a lot of, there's no incentive. You're going to go up on your calendar minimum, and you're going to get considered at that, mm -hmm. and there's nothing to really be looking at as far as behavior-wise. Now, don't get me wrong. The parole board looks at your behavior, right? but most people, especially if they're doing a longer sentence, um, aren't thinking 15 years down the road until mm -hmm. they get to two or three years down the road. Right. So the first one is messy. Now, if you've got disciplinary credits to think about, and it can cost you more years... You're going to right. think about it more, and therefore you're going to have a different mindset through the entirety of your sentence as opposed to towards the end of it. And I use this analogy. If you stick a sponge in the bottom of a sink and you start um, just a little uh, a slow stream of water coming out, that sponge will soak up pretty much every drop that comes out of that faucet, mm -hmm. which is what happens if you do over the course of an entire sentence, they get to absorb the material. Right. If you put them uh, in the last two years and try and put everything in them, it's like turning the faucet on full blast. Half of it splatters over the side, onto the floor, everything else, and, and, and you wasted an opportunity. That makes sense. Good time makes good sense. Good time makes a good sense. So does good sponges. <laughs> <laughs> so how did your time in prison prepare you for life on the outside? I mean, because I would imagine going in for 27 years, it would be a drastic change when you came out i use this and people are people who listen to me are going to get tired of hearing this story but it's so apropos that my fiance took a picture of me sitting out on the uh, the patio with ice water in my hand my feet kicked up um she said i want to send it back into jp a friend of mine in there she said i want jp to see the free adam jp responded the same day and said adam doesn't look any different <laughs> He must have been free before he went home. And so my experience of this has been seamless in the sense that I started living like I was free well before I came home because I think that's extremely important. If you're, if you're constantly putting things off, practice makes permanent. It doesn't make perfect. Mm -hmm. You know, you go out there and run routes on the football field and stuff, not so that you can do them perfectly, but right. so you create muscle, muscle memory so that you know, you right. know, it's four and an out. You don't even have to think and count about these things anymore. And if you start doing those things in there, when you come out here, I, I had already developed good habits. So I just had a bigger yard. I just had more opportunities available to me. Um, but I also understand that my circumstances and situation was a little bit different because of COVID, too, because the world shrunk, and I'd already come from a smaller place, so I was built for this, you know? Thriving chaos. Right. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's talking about being locked down and stuff, and I'm like... This, mm, is, this is freedom. This is not it. I, tell, I told Katie all the time, you know, my fiance, I said, you're the best bunkie I ever had. <laughs> you know, plus I have a refrigerator here and a memory foam mattress and all these things. I'm like, I'm, I'm living the life. That's hilarious. So when you got out of prison, uh, did you find it difficult to find acceptance? Did you find it difficult to, to find jobs? I mean, you had mentioned COVID. Obviously, it would, I'm sure it's a little easier to find jobs now, yeah. but... It is, well, it was, it is, and it isn't. Because, like, I found a job. I got a job canvassing. I was actually canvassing for the Elliott Larson Civil Rights Act. And uh, the first week 
um, was when COVID jumped off. I was at the Secretary of State when they closed it down. Oh. I was on Michigan State's campus when they closed it down. And that Sunday, they closed down the entire company that I was working for. I just got oh. promoted to field supervisor. Oh, wow. Um, I was really excited, and, and the world started to close down. So there are more possibilities but also a lot of things are just they just are what they are and there mm -hmm. are stigmas associated with people who are incarcerated the way it's set up is is it doesn't matter the fact that my crime was 27 years old i was still under super supervision so it might as well have happened yesterday right so that it's still a current mm -hmm. uh thing so i i joke all the time about that i was i was 30 for 30 in interviews everybody <laughs> wanted to hire me but they didn't have the decisions the decisions right. are above them and so they would make their point they would make their argument and they would tell me things like well maybe after a year maybe after a year and a half um and the two jobs that i got i got to interview with the ceos mm -hmm. And so when they interviewed me, they wanted to hire me and they had to say so. Matter of fact, the one for Home of New Vision, actually, uh, Glennis Anderson actually told me, she said, do you know you're a miracle? Um, and and that's that really makes you feel good, but it also makes you feel sad because I shouldn't be the anomaly coming out of prison. I should be more of the norm. Mm -hmm. Um, it made me feel good that I overcame it, but it but it made me feel bad that there aren't more. And there are. Don't get me wrong. I'm not. I'm not saying I'm the. I, I, there's a lot of people right. that, that 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 come out that do great things, um, but we are the extreme. But the minority. the stigma is if somebody comes out of prison, especially for like a crime like that, that they're just going to commit that again and end up back in prison. Absolutely, and 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 and, and it's and it's an unfounded stigma. Mm -hmm. It's just like because. It, actually there are all kinds of statistics that especially somebody who's done the amount of time that I do shows that we don't um, recidivate at the same level we you're, age out of some of this stuff you're institutionalized right yeah yeah but the whole world is institutionalized that's <laughs> the one thing that I found out is, is most people out here are institutionalized too I, I used to joke I, I, I half jokingly talked <laughs> about my family and stuff like that that they did a bit too um, it wasn't just me. The mm -hmm. only difference was is that their their yard was bigger. The 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 fence kept me in and kept me from them, and the fence kept them out mm -hmm. and kept them from me. So that was kind of the difference. Institutionalization. The the the, the institutions are just a microcosm of the world as a whole. Mm -hmm. But so many people are caught up in their own institutional ways of thinking, whether it's you know, the way they order their groceries now on Amazon and it's stuff true. like that. They don't know what to do if Amazon does not show up at their door. I mean, just look at COVID <laughs> when uh, everything shut down. People were panicking. They started going and buying random crap because they thought they were going to not be able to buy it. So Absolutely. that's a good point. Absolutely. And the only difference is, is that it's, it's, I don't want to say that this is entirely the case, but in a, in a society that has started to evolve in some ways and says these things are not okay, mm -hmm. the one area that it still seems okay to pile on is with those who are criminal justice impacted. Because it's okay to call us names and labels that you wouldn't get away with calling somebody racially, ethnically, anything else. They're we're, called, we're constant, like, I'm an offender. Okay. Because I'm still on parole. Okay. You know, I mean, and then I become an ex-offender. <laughs> when I get off parole and it's like, I haven't robbed a bank in 29 years, you know, like when do I become unoffensive? Um, and, and, but it's okay. And I think in some ways, unfortunately, society has been given a scapegoat that they still have a group of people. And the fact that the majority of people are black and brown in these situations is mm -hmm. another way for some latent racism and stuff like that right. to be able to come out because they can just call talk about convicts and offenders mm -hmm. and everything else because they can't use the words that they actually want to use. <laughs> right, right. You know? Yeah. Um, I had something I was going to say. I don't remember what it was now. That happens. Um, so... You obviously took courses in prison. What what courses did you take, and what degree did you get? I got a degree, uh, an associate's degree, but it was in psychology. Okay. Um, the university that I was working at didn't have one in sociology, so okay. the majority of my credits, other than the stuff that I had to take, were either psychology, sociology, or philosophy, because I love philosophy, too. The main class that I taught 
in there was a philosophy group called uh, Wholeness Ethics. And it's based on a concept that a friend of mine, who's still in there after 37 years now, um, developed around the idea of right relationship and what are the, the three aspects of right relationship, which are reverence, goodwill, and justice. Um, and it's about seeing there's something greater within everybody and speaking to that part of them, dealing with them on that level, um, being in right relationship even with wrong relators. Um, and I think one of the most um, powerful parts of those three aspects is, is the last part, which is justice. And we redefine justice as giving what is needed to be whole as opposed to what is deserved for not being whole. And our justice system now is one of just desserts. And so whatever you did wrong, you need to be punished for it. And you can't somehow, you know, be told you're a good person because you did something bad. Right. Um, and I think that's destructive. It, mm -hmm. does not, it does not help people re rehabilitate. And not only that, but the majority of us that have gone to prison are not very um, consequence-minded. We don't really think about that. Mm -hmm. And a perfect example of that is the death penalty. Everywhere there's a death penalty, the death, the, the, the uh, amount of murders does not really change. Really? Um, because people aren't thinking about that when they're mad enough <laughs> to kill somebody. People aren't thinking about that when they're broke enough that they need right. to rob something or they're locked into a lifestyle. Mm -hmm. We're not thinking about the consequences. We're not thinking logically on that level. So Now... Coming out of prison, were you afraid that you might fall back into some of the things that you no. were involved in? You you had completely transformed who you were as a person. You you obviously matured and and you studied a lot and became pretty self aware of who you were. I was not I was not afraid of it. I was not concerned about it. I was afraid that sometime how my past uh, might catch up with me in some way, shape, or form, and somebody might um, put me under too much pressure not that i couldn't handle it but that people lie mm -hmm. um and when you're on parole and when you're under when you're under supervision that's one of the biggest problems of the system that most people don't understand especially that haven't been criminally justice impacted is once they've got your hooks in their hooks into you then they keep their hooks into you like right now i could go back for anything i'm still a prisoner Mm -hmm. I'm not a free person while you're on parole. This is the least restrictive form of incarceration, parole. So they would not have to prove anything. Really? Yeah. I mean, thankfully, I've got a rock star for a fiancé, but if she got <laughs> mad at me and said that I put my hands on her... You'd be going back. I would go back, and there would be no questions about it. And 2045 would be the only guaranteed outdate really? that I would have. So they wouldn't treat it like a new crime? No, because especially a lot of times, well, it, things have changed a little bit. It's hard to say with COVID. They're, they're, they're tinkering with their um, recidivism numbers by like holding people in jail longer and waiting till they're off parole and then sentencing them for their new crime because then it doesn't count against their recidivism rates. But that's, that's another political ploy um, that's wow. going on. But chances are they wouldn't bother with it because... It's more judiciously um, uh, efficient and, and more economical for them to just send you back with a, with a sentence like this, right? Because um, I because I hadn't learned my stuff all the way while I was in there either. I mean, several years ago, I was I was one of those people that was caught up in doing stupid tax stuff in there, and mm -hmm. they came and they you know caught up with me and everything else, and they didn't prosecute because of the fact that I had so much time anyway. Oh wow! They're like. It's it's not knock it off <laughs> right. It's right. It's not going to work. So that's the one. The the thing about it is 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 that when you are on parole, you are still you know subject to their rules, mm -hmm. not all the legal rules and protections um, that a lot of people take for granted. So do you have to uh, meet with uh, a parole officer every week or every couple days? Monthly. Every month, okay. Monthly. I was, I was um, when I first got out, I was under a more intensive version of it, and I had to um, give urine drops twice a month, and I had to see them twice a month. And uh, COVID happened, and it kind of eased things up, and I've, and I've been, you know, a model parolee anyway. I, I joke 
I joke because a lot of times they don't always know what the resources are that are available. And I work as the Jackson Area Recovery Community Coordinator, so I'm aware of a lot of recovery resources oh, cool. and work with Nation Outside and stuff like that. So I've actually funneled some resources back wow. um, to my local uh, parole agents and oh, stuff like cool. that. So. Um, that's one, one question I wanted to ask you is, um, now that you're out of prison, are you able to find a way to use your degree as far as like a job or obviously you're, you're working with other nonprofits? Right. It's kind of secondary. The, 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 the job that I, I've, I've got two jobs. One of them is, is a peer recovery coach. Um, and I actually got trained for that shortly before I left prison. And we actually developed the program at St. Louis, which was the first one in a men's facility. And a peer recovery that's, coach... That's your water, by the way. Okay, thank you. Yep. And a peer recovery coach is um, somebody who's had their own substance use uh, issues and who has you know, traveled through different um, means to find recovery and can share their journey. It's a lived experience type of job. And so I became a certified peer recovery coach and a certified peer support specialist. One deals with mental health, one deals with SUD. And so those were the main things that helped me, you know, find work. It's one of the few areas where my past comes into play mm. and helps me. Um, but a lot of places won't hire you too because I have too much lived experience. <laughs> They're like, nah, we want some, but not quite that much. Um, so it's worked. But the but but my degree has also helped because I think it showed something of what I did with my time. Mm -hmm. It also, I mean, let's be honest. The degree is mostly for for most jobs. It is a receipt to show that you have the ability to follow along with something and learn right. it to whatever degree. And so I showed that I was able to do that. I did a three point eight three or whatever. Wow. Um, so I did I did okay as far as the grades go too. So that's awesome. Um, yeah, so that, that logic class screwed up my 4.0. <laughs> was it difficult? It was, let, let me give you, in a nutshell, my last quiz before my final, I did, I, I aced everything with informal logic. I love informal logic. When you get into the formal logic. What, what's informal and informal? Informal and uninformal. Well, the formal part is literally like math equations. Okay, it's like it's it's terrible. I didn't really like algebra, and I wasn't a big fan of English. And it was like <laughs> the two of them had a bastard child and <laughs> called it, you know, formal logic. Um, so it was very difficult. Um, the informal logic is just basic things like lawyers and stuff learn. So they learn okay. how to make different kinds of arguments, the the law of division and multiplication and you advertising, you start to see it in everything around you, how they get you to think hmm. about things a certain way or make these faulty, you know, arguments. Right. The formal, I did I did the last quiz before my final and got a sixty two on it. Um and I was just there was I was like, there's no way I'm gonna figure this out. And I just nose to the grindstone um, kept plugging it out, and all of a sudden something clicked. And my final had a 10-point um, extra credit question on it, so I ended up with 107% uh, on my final. Wow. So it just clicked, and I don't know. I don't, that, was, that was a big turning point for me, too. I'd already gotten on the path, but there was something about that that was like, if I can do this and if mm -hmm. I can do it kind of on my own, because when you're doing correspondence through the mail, by the time you get a response to a question you've had, you've already had to figure it out by three <laughs> weeks to get on to the next thing. Wow! So, um, yeah, it taught it, it. It taught me. It gave. It helped me get that resilience that I said that I didn't have when I left mm -hmm. the first time. So, um, I can't remember the guy. I I, I want to look him up. So the guy that I had on from Good Good Time makes good sense. Um, he had said to me that um, prison. He didn't survive prison. Um, because people oftentimes ask him, "How did you survive prison?" He he'll respond, "I I didn't," right. because he went in at 16 years old and didn't get out until he was like almost 40. Right. Um, would you agree with that statement? Because he, he he had said that prison broke him. It broke who he was as a person, and you know he's kind of forever broken from it. I think the the way I described it to my fiance is is that it takes bites out of you. And sometimes you don't learn where those bites have been taken out of you until later. I think some people, some people um, are broken. We're all forever changed. 
Um, and some of us um, are forced to give birth to a better version of ourselves. So I think that, you know, no matter the circumstances, you're all we're all affected. Rich Griffin, that's his name. Okay, yeah. You, you know who he is? Yes, I do. Yeah. Yes, I do. As a matter of fact, I think he's working in Grand Rapids with Nation Outside now or something okay. like that, too. Um, and I've run into him. I've run into most of these guys that are doing this. Yeah. You can't do that amount of time and not run into each other, you know? <laughs> Rick Speck and Jose and... Uh, uh, Jose Rivera? Uh, yes. I invited him on the podcast. Okay. Yeah. So there's a lot of guys that I've run into over the years, and, and most of them had started this path before they ever came home. Because uh, you have to. One of the worst things that happens, and it happens out here too, but again, it's, it's, more, it's more obvious in there because you're you know, under you know, a, a microscope in some ways, is this when... You know, when I get a better job, when I earn more money, when the kids, you know, grow up, all these things that, that somehow is later. In prison, it all revolves around one thing, when I get out. And I used to tell guys all the time in the classes, why aren't you doing the stuff that you can do now, though? You're going to have so much to do mm -hmm. when you get home. Let's get these things checked off right. before you walk out. So that's what I was doing with my degree. That's what I was doing with these habits and things like that. Everything that I could do while I was there, I did. So that when I walked out, literally, you put me on the ground and I took off running. My fiance still looks at me sometimes and she said, you know, you told me, but I didn't know what it would actually look like, <laughs> you know, and sometimes she still has to check to make sure that what I'm doing is self-care because I'm so busy. You know, Jerry asked me if I had any hobbies. This is my hobby and this is my life. You know, I, 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 I got through prison and I grew in prison um, by every day I put my head down for the last 15 years I knew I'd done my best, and I'd accomplished something. There was a sense of purpose in every day. And that's what I do now, too. It's not that, I, that I'm anti-hobby. Mm -hmm. It's I don't have time for a hobby because well, trying I love to make what up, I do. Trying to make up for time, lost yeah. time. And I, do, and I love what I do, and I think that's kind of what a hobby mm -hmm. is, is an opportunity to do something that you love. And what I'm doing, Absolutely. I love. Yep. So, you know, why would I want to pick up a ball of yarn and some needles or something? I mean, I don't maybe, know if I'd love maybe that. Not that hobby, that hobby. That maybe, sounds, maybe sounds not that hobby. Maybe not. I did do latch hook <laughs> as a kid, though, so. So how did you meet your, your fiancé? Did you guys meet while you were in prison? You said you guys have been together for 13 years, right? That's an interesting story, and, um, uh, you know, because talk about stigma. There are stigma with prison wives and prison girlfriends and things like that, too. Right. And she's not the typical in any way, shape, or form. Um, her cousin came to prison. Okay. And he was in his 40s, um, uh, more effeminate. You know, the things that you would always look for somebody coming into prison, that they're not good things. It's <laughs> not going to be a good time um, for him in prison. And... He'd struggled with a lot of stuff, and he had had a serious suicide attempt before he came to prison. And everybody in his family was in panic mode because he had like a five-year sentence, and it's like there's no way he's going to survive this. Um, so they were just waiting for the other shoe to drop and to hear that he'd passed away. Mm. And so everybody was rallying around him and circling the wagons and... Um, writing him on a regular basis, and time passed, and they just kept hearing, Taz said this, and Taz said that, and Taz talked about this in class. And after about a year had passed, everybody in the family had started to realize that Dan was not only doing okay and was going to survive, it seemed like he was thriving in some ways. He was growing in ways that they didn't anticipate. And Katie, being the person that she is, um, and being raised by her mother, who taught her to write thank you notes, hmm. uh, wrote me a thank you note and telling me how much I had impacted the entire family, which is nothing something I had never considered. I knew I was impacting the people that I was working with. Mm -hmm. I hadn't fully thought about the ripple effects um, of those kind of things. And so she told me how much of a difference I'd made in her life and the rest of her family's life. And funny because Dan tried to give me her address. I said, Dan, she wrote through you for a reason. She's not <laughs> trying to write. 
But I did want to tell her, because I knew how much it had changed my life to hear about that impact. I wanted her to know how much she'd impacted right. my life. And right. so I wrote her back, and she mulled it over for about a month and wrote me back, and we've been inseparable ever since. Thousands of pages of letters later. Wow. I wrote her a 57-page letter one time on a typewriter, <laughs> and I set it to 15-pitch so that I could get 144 characters <laughs> per line. So when I say it was 57 pages on a normal letter with normal spacing, that was like a 100-page oh, letter. So, yeah, set the bar high. <laughs> that's hilarious. <laughs> um, well, that's quite the interesting story, and it's cool that you were able to make such an impact in somebody else's life while you were in, on a whole family. Sure. Rather. But... um. So looking back on your time in prison, uh, would you, are you happy that you served, not, not necessarily happy, but are you, are you glad that you were put into a situation to where you had to either correct yourself or, or essentially you're probably heading towards like death, you know? Yes. The, the yes. Ultimately I, I am, um, it's hard for people to understand that with serving 27 years because the first thing that they want to do is like grieve for you. Right. You know, and, and, um, I wanted to too at first, but 27 years is a long time. It is a long time. And it's, and it's unimaginable when you're 22, you can't even picture that it's, it's beyond your, your understanding. Mm -hmm. So there were in the midst of doing it, I had more, um, more of those feelings than I do now. Uh, I guess the best way that I can sum it up is, is like people will ask me certain things and they'll ask like, do you have any regrets or, you know, time that was lost? First off, the time wasn't lost. I, I, I have to dispel something. And that is prison is not the worst place in the world. There are still people there and there's still good people there. And there are people that I love in there and people that are friends of mine in there. And I had some good times in there. It's not a place to live you know, in your entire life, and it's very difficult. It's like, you know, trying to grow flowers on a sidewalk. Every once in a while, you'll see one pop through, but it's not a good environment for it. But nonetheless, I, I, I lived my life in there, so I, I appreciate that. I also have to learn things the hard way. So I had fooled myself for so long that the only way that I was going to know that these things were real were to be put through challenges mm -hmm repeatedly and be like, okay, that is who you actually are. The last challenge I got in that regard was I got to my, I got to my minimum out date with my disciplinary credits and, but I was under the habitual. So I actually had to petition and go back before the judge and it was a successor judge. And again, like I said, she didn't fully understand the way things were going and they didn't even review what I'd done with my time. It was just like, you need to do this. So 25 years into this, with my whole family sitting in the gallery um, in Eaton County Courthouse, which was emotional because every other time I'd been in that courthouse, I'd just hurt people. Mm -hmm. And so I walked in there every time and I would see the people I hurt and I would see the other people I hurt, which were my family that were there to support me. And this right. time I walked in there a whole different person and I hadn't hurt anybody until I walked out of the courtroom because she shot me down. Mm -hmm. So now everybody who's there to support me is now crying in tears and thinking there's no way this just happened. Right. Um, and, and so I had to take the long ride back um, to the facility I was at. Where, did, um, where were you uh, housed at? Um, at that point in time, I was at St. Louis. I've been to like 15 different facilities, Holy some of cow. them more than twice. The all, biggest place in Michigan. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. All in Michigan. I did. I did the brunt of my time. I did like six years at MR and I did nine years at Ken Ross, but I've been to quite a few different facilities. And so I go back to the, I go back to St. Louis and I'm thinking to myself, what am I going to do now? Cause she just told me I've got to do four and a half more years. Right. You know, so now it's like a whole new bit. I just did a 25. Now I got to do four. Mm -hmm. Um, and it came to me that you'll keep doing what you've been doing. And I went back in and I taught a class because that's kind of who I am and that's what I do. And it's cathartic for me too. And, um, uh, there was no other option. 
I allowed myself to grieve. I, I allowed myself to get angry because it was messed up. That never should have happened. But that last two years taught me um, that everything that I'd done was real. And I, for the first time in my life, I absolutely knew who I was, knew what I was capable of. And um, I'm grateful for a couple guys that were working in the law library with me that said, no, don't lay down and take this. You know, because I thought about it and I was like, you're going to victimize your family all over again if you just accept these four years. And so I took it back on appeal and I won my appeal. I've got a published opinion, which is a rare thing for a lawyer to get, let alone somebody wow. doing it from a prison law library. And that's what got me out before COVID. What was published? It's the entire, it's, it's, it's uh, 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 Adam Grant versus the state of Michigan. Um, I don't have the numbers right now because they just actually came out with the numbers. So it would be something mishap. Can I we think. can we look it up at some point? Absolutely, absolutely. Um, matter of fact, I'll try and get it. My my mother-in-law actually knows the site. She used to work for the <laughs> attorney general's office, so she knows the actual site. Um, but it but it should change the way that some people are treated because it said that you can't you have to take into account new information. You can't. The whole point beside, behind sending somebody to, to, to prison is rehabilitation. Mm -hmm. That's, it's punishment, too, but the punishment factor is taken care of. That's built, built right. into it. But you can't make a decision about somebody who's been down for 25 years without looking at what he did with those 25 years. So how long were you sent back to prison before you won your, your appeal? Two years. Two years. Two years. So does anything happen to them? No. Are you uh, accounted for that time? No. No, it's just lost time? No. Because, again, you don't have any right to any outdate except for 2045. Wow. Um, and so that's one of the things that I think, like, good time making good sense and doing things like this is hard for people to wrap their heads around because they've got some things that have got some lower-hanging fruit that it's easier for them to do. Right. Like when you hear about people, you know, wrongfully incarcerated in the first place, that's easy for the average person person right, to right. be like that's some bull that should never happen yeah you even got on the next layer of it you've got juvenile lifers where some people are like yeah you're right that's not cool we that shouldn't was, be sending that was like rich griffin exactly so they can start to do that i fall into the category where it's easier for people to take shots because they're like you're guilty yes i'm guilty i'm as guilty as they come mm -hmm. i admit it right but still how do we treat even the guilty you know, it's right. 27 years, and, and like you said, most of us are coming out. And right. who do you want coming out next to you? Right. You know, it wasn't the Department of Corrections. It wasn't their programs that reformed me. Mm -hmm. It's the same things that got me in trouble that got me to get my life together because I got stubborn, and I decided you people aren't going to win. <laughs> I'm not going to become the person that you want to be. I'm not going to become a statistic. Um, I'm going to become the person that I was you know, created to be. And that's been a pretty amazing uh, discovery. Now, what was one of the most difficult things coming out of prison? I mean, because obviously when you went in, in, it was a different time. Uh, it was a different era. And then, <laughs> and then coming out, we now have smartphones and right. laptops and whatnot. What was that like? It actually started before I came home because you don't get exposed to computers or anything like that e in there either. So remember, the internet in earnest started the year after I went to prison. Wow. That's a little bit of context. <laughs> Um, that marks a, a time in history. Yes, there were like <laughs> Commodore 64s and stuff when, when I was out. And so nobody really did anything with them. I didn't. Um, and you don't get exposed to them in there because the Department of Corrections are, I mean, they're not full Luddites. They're not, ex they're not completely scared of technology. They're afraid of what we'll do with technology. And so, like, we skipped the CD era. We went from cassette tapes to MP3s because they didn't mm -hmm. even want to let CDs in the state of Michigan. So I got a job... 2014 at Carson City where as a clerk and it was the first time I got to touch a computer wow and I went I went and, and I'd seen stuff on TV and stuff like that so I thought I knew what I was doing so I clicked on it and it shadowed and I looked at it and it didn't open and I <laughs> clicked it again and it didn't open and I was too proud to ask my co-worker it took me five minutes of clicking this thing one time <laughs> And looking at it. And finally, I was like, dude, I keep clicking this thing. What seems to be the problem? He's like, did you double click it? I'm like, what's a double click? <laughs> Where's that button at? Right. 
So that technology part of it started started early, but I was grateful for that job because the next two jobs that I had, I had access to a computer, and so I taught myself a lot of things. And then they did the second chance Pell Grants, and I got in that just before I left, so I was able to take a you know, Microsoft suite class and oh, stuff cool. like that. So I learned that, and I've got a, a brother-in-law that uh, knows his stuff with a lot of things, so he's kept me out of you know, some kind of trouble that it's easy <laughs> to get into and put things on your phone you shouldn't put on your phone and, you know, things of that nature. So it's been it's been interesting, but I've also been... I haven't been resistant, but, I, but I, I, I've always been the same way. What I need to know, I learn. Mm -hmm. And what I don't, a lot of times I don't. So I'm slowly learning things. I don't know much about, you know, Instagram or Twitter okay. or anything like that. I'm... I'm having a hard enough time doing the social media stuff for my job with fa oh, this Facebook page. Um, but eventually, I'd like to learn some of that stuff. So That's cool. Now, um, we're going to wrap this up soon, but um, what is your future goals? Uh, I know I'm sure Jerry asked you what your future goals for the next five years are. Um, what are some of your goals? Actually, Jerry didn't get a chance to ask me that because we went long anyway, and I, <laughs> and I had to pick somebody up. Um, so I don't know if I necessarily have five-year goals. I have daily goals that lead me to greater things. I'm a okay. directional type of person. Like, like I know that I'm heading north-northwest, and so I worry about the roads and I pivot as I go. Um, he did ask me, however, if, there, if, if that I want to kind of carve out and do something other than like criminal justice reform and prison reform, and the answer to that is no. I see myself in this field. Uh, I, I'll turn 63 when I get to the half and half point of half of my life in, half of my life out. So it doesn't make any sense for me to kind of move on and... How old are you right now? 51. Wow. 51, so... Well, you look good. Bye, 51. Thank you, thank you very much. <laughs> um, they, 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 they say that... They say that, that prison will sometimes pickle you in one way, shape, or form, <laughs> so it seems to have pre preserved me a little bit. Um, but I, but, but I want to see myself in this field and, and, and how that ends up transforming. I joked on Jerry's show too, that, that, um, Ashley, uh, Ashley for nation outside got my job because I interviewed for the job too. She's an awesome fit and she's better for it than I am. I'll give her credit for that. Um, when she moves on at some point in time, I think I'll still be around. Um, <laughs> but I want to work in this, I want to work in this field because I think it's extremely important and I think. It's, it's the basic idea of no decisions about us without us. Mm -hmm. We know what's going on. We may not always know what will work, but I'll tell you what, I know what won't work a lot better than somebody who studied theory. Right. You know, because yeah. I've seen it. And I'm not saying everything that works for me will work for somebody else, but I, but I can tell you a lot of things that won't work. Um, so I want to be involved in this. I want to continue to be an advocate I show up for things like this on a regular basis because um, I've been told that I have a really simple way of, you know, of putting things simply so people can understand them. Yep. And that's what that and that's what I think is needed because more people need to be um, pulled into the tent because so often everything that we're talking about, I see the same people at right all the time. Right. And it's good to be able to talk, to, to preach to the choir, because the choir needs preaching to, too. But you also got to open the windows and expand the congregation. Right. And that's what I kind of want to do, and that's what I see myself doing, is this kind of being a face. I joke that my suits, I've got suits at home I hardly ever get to wear because of COVID. <laughs> but it's my camouflage, because it gets me into doors that wouldn't otherwise. And then once they let me in, then I can tell them my story, because they think they know something about me looking at me. Have you had, because that was one thing Rich talked about, he, he was saying that, that he would meet with uh, like legislators and stuff, and he would propose the good time makes good sense argument to them and they'd be like oh yeah that, that that makes sense and then he would tell them his story oh i was in prison for 24 years or whatever and they're like oh well now i'm not so interested anymore <laughs> right right and, and and that does happen it also happens that, that there have been a lot of times over the <clears throat> years that the main advocates that we've had and the most staunch advocates we've had have been people who've been in relationships with people in prison and so it gave it 
if somebody wants a reason to turn up their nose, they will. It wasn't that credible. Yeah. yeah. So they find an excuse to, and that's all they're waiting for anyway. And it's like, if you expect Captain Kangaroo to come make an argument for us with Mr. Green Jeans, <laughs> then you're, you're in for something else. We're going to make the argument. And to me, if you want to turn up your nose at somebody like Rich, then you're not paying attention right. because you can take credit for him. Right. If you want to yeah. say that you've done anything right in the system, you should be you should be elevating our voice. Right. It proves right. to me that that's not necessarily what they want, and it certainly isn't what they believe in, or else they would be finding ways to engage us and claiming us as success stories. Instead, they sit there and shoot at us in certain ways. And um, somebody told me one time, nobody shoots at burnout light bulbs. So as long as people are taking shots at me, I must be emitting some kind of light. I feel good <laughs> with that. Well said. Hmm. I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> um, I think I think it's important for people like you who have experienced prison to speak up and and be advocates for for criminal justice. So hmm. I think I think it's great, and I commend you for doing it. Well, I, I hope it's good because with all that other time, this is the best purpose that I can think of for it. I couldn't, I couldn't see myself, I couldn't get a job um, at Shell because they wouldn't let me order 50, they wouldn't let me handle $50 or more, which wow. is kind of ridiculous. I couldn't get the apartment above my mother-in-law because I had a criminal history, despite the fact that we had already been approved um, with my fiance. All these different things that I can't do, the one thing that I know that I can do is speak to my experience mm -hmm. and, and, and tell people this is possible. The one thing that, that I would like to extend in this realm and extend the, can the, the, the canopy to include is, is not just returned citizens, but the citizens that are still sitting inside the walls because they keep seeing the people who are coming back right. and who have done something wrong, and they hear these faint stories occasionally of a few of us. They need to know how many of us are out here fighting for them and that they have a responsibility in this too. So they need to start doing the work now so that there's more of us out here. Right. You know, there's plenty of room in this arena for more of us. And the more of us we have, the more the system is going to have to change because they'll run out of people. And that's how you break the stigma. Absolutely. Um, is there anything you want to talk about while you're on here? Do you want to promote some of the, uh, what was that one nonprofit? Um, that you work for? I work for, um, uh, uh, now I, <laughs> Home of New Vision. Um, and, and they do remarkable work when it comes to recovery and stuff like that. And so I'm grateful for them, and they definitely hire returning citizens, which is uh, a good place, too. But the two main things that I just want to promote right now is, is uh, Nation Outside. Nation, Nation Outside, that's what it Nation was. Outside is, is, is um, amazing. It's... It is those who've been justice impacted, those are the formerly incarcerated, trying to be the voice for the voiceless, which are the people who are still inside, and some people who are out who still don't have a voice. Um, they're finding their way into legislative sessions, they're finding their way into boardrooms, they're finding their way into government positions and things like that. Quick question. Yes. So do, do all these groups, do they work together? Like for something like this, I would think that good time makes good sense would want to work with like nation outside. Right. And they do. Do they? And they do. There's been a few events that I've been to that, that, that literally, I think her name's Mariah. Um, she works, she works with them too. And she'll sit okay. down at the actual, uh, uh, tent that we have set up and, and we'll do that at different, uh, places. So they'll have something set up and we'll sit with them. I'm sitting with the Jackson district library for nation outside, um, uh, down in Jackson on the 28th. There's a lot of places who do work together. There's also um, a lot of people um, who will cannibalize one another because they see it as a zero-sum game, and they're more it's more important sometimes for them to maintain their status and their agency than what it is we're trying to work for. One mm -hmm. of the reasons I like working with Nation Outside is, is because that's not, that's not their thing. They're not necessarily trying to hog all the oxygen in the room right they're not trying to take all the money they're they are a non-service organization so they don't do direct services which frees them up to be able to help some other agencies and stuff like that and another one that i'd like to give a shout out to is uh, um, kt kelly and power and passion because what she's doing 
um, has the ability to do exactly what we're talking about, that you create, there's a technological format that all of a sudden you can put everybody together and everybody can be found easily. People come out of prison all the time and they've got the same tired documents from the 1980s. I'm not exaggerating. It's a Xerox of a Xerox <laughs> of a Xerox and you can barely read it. Wow. And they're so antiquated and they tell you about these things you can get that you can't get anymore. To do something technologically and to be able to put that information back into people's hands so when they come out, no matter where they're at, all of a sudden they can pull up this Power and Passion app and find who is um, uh, uh, return citizen friendly when it comes to housing, when it comes to, you know, there's mental health services that she's putting on there, you know, mm -hmm. people, employers that are, that are uh, uh, promoting uh, returned citizens' rights and, the, and their value and things like that. All these things that she's doing to me are amazing. It's still in kind of in its infancy, and, okay. and I'm kind of um, trying to give the big shout out because the other thing that we have to think about this is, is this is a small area, and anytime we have to work in other fields, that's something that's being brought. I'm working 60 hours at other jobs and volunteering to right. do this. Right. Um, but any time that we can find ways to support things like this, we need to do it, and we need to put a shoulder behind this stuff because she's got kids. She doesn't need to be working another job. She needs to be making this right. everything that it can possibly be. Could you put me in contact with her? Absolutely. Cool. Absolutely. All right, cool. Um, yeah, I, that's not even an issue I was aware of. Yeah. So I, I'm glad that you brought that to my attention. Yeah. That's cool. I think I think I think in an ideal world we would all be working together. Yeah. Um, but I think unfortunately there anytime you have people there are politics. Mm -hmm. Um and sometimes the people don't even know they're practicing the politics. Right. Um but but that's also why I think some of us coming out of prison are so built for this stuff mm -hmm. because the yard is nothing but politics. <laughs> And so you learn how to navigate a bunch of people. Out here, you can get away from everybody. Right. In there, you got 1,600 people, and I see the same 1,599 people every day going into the chow hall, going into the library, mm -hmm. things like that. I have to navigate. I have to pay attention to other people. Right. You know, some people are a little bit more versed at it, but all of us that have been there have figured out how to read a yard. And like I said, this is just a bigger yard. So. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate this. Uh, you're you're an awesome person. <laughs> Thank you. I I've enjoyed talking with you. And your story is incredible. I'm glad that you were able to come out on the other side and that you weren't the, uh, the, the stereotype. Me too. <laughs> Me too. Uh, all right. Well, thanks again. All right. Thank you. Yep. <laughs>